You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, as Ethan was saying, um, we have just been uh, journeying through this book of Genesis, and it's been really um, sweet to me. Uh, I know we've been moving very, very slowly and deliberately, and there's, there's a reason and a rhyme for that. Um, there's four segments of the book of Genesis, creation, fall, rescue, and redemption. And just even as Taylor was leading worship this morning, um, I think that um, it's, it's hard to look through uh, past the, you know, before the cross and before sin and before the curse back at, as Taylor was, was leading us and, and, and talking about the scriptures this morning, the original heart of God for man. The original heart of God for man and woman, that's the title of this series that we've been looking at, the theme, God and man, um, was to bless and not to curse. Uh, the, heart, the heart of God towards man was never to destroy. It was always to, to breathe life and to be close. It was always to build up and to, um, and to, to, to create a, a relationship of, of partnership and dignity and value. That was the, the intent. Um, and so as we've looked at this book, um, all of the, the book of Genesis really finds its, its place at the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, uh, verse 20. When Joseph says to his brothers, Joseph, one of the people of God that kind of grow as the family of God grows throughout the narrative, um, says to his brothers, after they pretty much left him for dead, I mean, that's the result of sin, right, is that we're not just sinning against God, we're sinning against our brothers and sisters, our family, our world, and now we have seven billion people multiplying that problem on the earth, and that the world has a curse to it for sure. But this is the the words that um, I think the writer puts very um, intentionally at the very end. He nests it at the very end of the book. And, and this is what Joseph says to his brothers, but really he says, um, I believe, as the mouthpiece of, God, piece of God to all of the world, look, um, though the enemy has, has made this day uh, into something evil, although um, man um, in his um, temptation and sin and his own brokenness has, has given away his, his blessing to uh, a dark thing, um, that God is not done working yet. And that God is, is, is redeeming and can turn all things back to his good. And that's, all, that's really what it's all about. I mean, there's 50 chapters and there's lots of confusing names and titles and characters. The role, the cast role is really, really long. But the theme is simply this, is that God is blessing today his world that is under a curse but is not fundamentally um, unredeemable. He is using all things in your life and my life to redeem things through his son Jesus. Is that good news? So we got to keep our eye on the prize in that way. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, um, and I'll just begin reading. And, um, and th- today is the, the, the close of that first segment. Uh, we'll, we'll have like a discussion panel up uh, next week, which is less of a message, more of a discussion, a conversation. There'll be a few people up here talking about some of these themes because there's been a lot of things that we've talked about so far in the first two chapters. But this will close the segment of creation. Uh, and the theme that we'll look up today is rest and work, rest and work. So if you turn to Genesis 2, it's the very first verse in Genesis 2, and I'll read it. It'll also be on the screen. And it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. So if you guys remember, if you've been following along with this, Genesis 1 is the cosmic creation. Genesis 2 is the intimate creation. Uh, Genesis 2, um, in, in, in Genesis 1, God refers to himself only as Elohim. In Genesis 2, God gives his personal name for the first time to the reader in the audience, that his name is Yahweh Elohim. Uh, he is a personal God. He is intimately involved in the, in the creation. He's not a deist. He is a, a father, a parent. And so uh, after he's done creating the heavens and earth, chapter 2 changes, and we see him focus in on one place within uh, the, the earth called the Garden of Eden. 
And this was a, a special place that uh, represented a holy place, a, a place where man and God were to dwell completely in this temple, uh, in this garden space. And so this is how he begins to cultivate what's going on in this garden. He says, uh, verse 2, on the seventh day, God had finished his work. And this is uh, before the, the account of the garden begins. It says, and on the seventh day, God finishes his work that he had done. And it says he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. And verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it God rested uh, from all of his work that he had done in creation. So you, so you got to think about this for a minute. Like if you're the writer, uh, the author of this book, uh, or if you're God and the Holy Spirit just breathing authority into the pages of this book, you have the real estate of about a page to explain the creation of the world. There's a lot that you could say, right? If you had to explain who is God and who is man and what's the purpose of it all. I mean, there's volumes of books and ink that's been shed from us like trying to explain this. And so as we remember from the beginning, we got to put our Hebrew mindset on, right? When we read the book, it's not a science book. It's a worship book. It's trying to explain not how, but who and, 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 and what is going on through whom uh, the world is being created and, and for whom it's being created for. And so we got to wrap our mind around the math of this. Like you've got seven paragraphs to talk about who God is. I mean, the purpose of life that scholars are going to debate about for centuries. And, and of those seven paragraphs, there's a whole paragraph just dedicated to rest. I mean, it's pretty, 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 pretty intense, right? And you think about this like, there's six days and there's a frenzy of creation. I mean, it's like mountains and stars and, and earth and water and wind and rain and all this stuff. It's like you have all of this creation. And there's all this stuff that's really left out of that between the lines of that. Like, like if you had a seventh paragraph, I mean, what else could you put in there? You could have talked about things like gravity. You could have talked about things like the Milky Way or the, or the solar system and how it works. Or you could have talked about the world being round. That would have solved a lot of geographic problems for us as human beings, you know, early on. That could have cut out a lot of work. You could talk about politics and like, is Adam supposed to be over anybody else? Is there, you know, supposed to be, you know, systems in an org chart? Like you could have talked about a lot of things, but in the seventh paragraph, uh, God uh, or, and, and the writer, God through the writer, we assume Moses, stops uh, at that sixth paragraph and on that seventh paragraph, he highlights, he spotlights this, this new thing that's called rest. And as we look at the passage, um, we realize that this idea of rest, uh, which does mean to cease and to stop, is not, uh, the seventh day is not just trying to show what God didn't do or what God stopped doing, which it does. Like it, it, it literally says that there's a, a work that was being done and we see that we has categorized all the first six days as work. But then there's this new thing that God stops and it says he rests. But then there's all these new words that has never been used. Well, at least one important word that's never been used before in all of the earlier verses of this chapter. And that is... Um, he takes this day and, he, and he, he calls it something. The Jews are going to call it this and label it later on. They're going to call it the Sabbath. But he takes this day and he doesn't just stop working, but he takes this day and he, and he starts something new. He goes in a new direction. And so on the seventh day, it says that God blessed this day. There's all these other days and he probably blesses them in some other ways and since he blesses things in it. But on this day, there's a special particular uh, approach to this day for God. It says he blesses this day. He's only blessed two other things up until this point. He's blessed the animals and he blessed the humans. And then he took a day and he blessed it. And then he uses a word that's really important for all the rest of the scripture that is the first time used in Genesis. And he says, this day is holy. It means set apart. So take a look at the screen. These are some of the creations that we've seen in the first six days of creation. Light and dark, sky and water, earth from sea, sun and moon, and stars, birds and fish, animals and humans. 
And we reminded as we look at this, at this list, like God isn't so much in the first six days like creating things, like creating substance and matter and, and, and being, you know, creating like molecules and protons and electrons. He does those things, but the, the, the narrative, the way that the, 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 the poem kind of goes, it paints this picture of God really more than making things. He's like, um, he's organizing things. He's categorizing things, you see? So like in the beginning, it doesn't say that he makes the light in the day so much as he separates the light in the day and he separates the sky and the water and he, and he makes distinction. He draws the line between where water is and where, where earth is. And, and yes, he made the molecules of it, but that's not what the verse says. The verse says that he, he, he designated the things. He starts to like create form out of this matter. Sun, moon, and stars, bird, and fish, animals, and humans. You need to know the difference between these things. And so God's hand is, is delineating between two things. And if we look at, at, at this seventh day, it's not too much different. It's like, here's the thing, like, we know from the sun and the stars, and we know from the idea of light and day that we have time on our hands. That's what we talked about in this in the beginning of Genesis, is like, God wants to pattern his life and do life with his creation. He's not a deist with his hands off. He's actively engaged and intimately involved in the creation. He creates a, ta- a pattern and a time and a rhythm to things. And I would, I would almost say it this way, right? Like, by the time he gets to the seventh day, you have this thing called time that we can measure on our watch. But I would say, the way I would put it in this seventh day, is God reaches even beyond that, and he creates something called timing. You guys know the difference between time and timing. Have you ever um, experienced bad timing before? Like, you meet somebody that's cute if you're single, and, you know, like, uh, you guys start talking, and uh, one thing leads to another, and maybe it would look like you'd have a relationship, but, but you realize that the person like just got out of a bad relationship, and it was the right person, and it was the right chemistry and everything, but it was the wrong what? It was the wrong timing. And, and, and farmers know this. Like if you're not you know, equipped, and you're not intelligent, or you're not watching the seasons, you can plant the right seed in the right soil, but the wrong what? season, the wrong time. You can have a bad timing. And so there's, there's time that's already been set up in, in the world and the universe, but then there's timing and God's creating timing. So we see this mirrored in Ecclesiastes. Some of you guys have heard this before being read maybe at funerals or something like that. But Ecclesiastes 3 goes through this whole list of different things, right? There's a time, uh, the, the teacher, we assume Solomon or somebody that's impersonating him, uh, he says there's a time to be born and a time to die. This is what Ecclesiastes says. And there's a time to plant and a time to uproot and a time to kill and a time to heal. He says, if you're a human being, you'll start to recognize that there's ways to do the right thing in the wrong time. And you don't want to tear down when it's time to build up. At the same time, in your business, in your work, in your family, you don't want to build up when it's time to tear down. And part of what it means to be a human is to, is to, is to get in step and get in rhythm. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about walking in wisdom and and grace and favor with God and man to do things in their timing. So now we have a whole other set of questions like, man, you could have just, man, you should have told, like, there should have been a single of seasonness and a single of season of marriedness. And on the seventh day, you just created it and we'd avoid a whole bunch of problems. But he decides out of all the list of things to talk about in timing, he says, I want you to know that there's a timing to rest and work. Really, really important. So there's a riddle on the stage, kids. Take a look at the riddle up here and see if you can figure out what this riddle means. Uh, Again, out of Ecclesiastes, this is chapter 4. Solomon's favorite word in Ecclesiastes is the word 
Um, hevel, it means meaningless. Uh, and it's, it's more than meaningless. It's like a vapor or smoke. James uses it when he says that life is a vapor. It's like you can kind of get the pattern of life and understand what it is, but as soon as you try and get it and grasp it, it just feels like smoke. Like you try and grab it and, it's, and, and it just doesn't work out. Like, you know, a proverb, which is not a promise, says raise your kids in the way of the Lord and they'll go and follow that way. But we know that sometimes when we try and grab a hold of that as though it was a promise instead of a proverb, sometimes things don't work out in the way that, I mean, most of the time they do. Most of the time, the Proverbs of, of the Bible tell us things that we can walk out and they will happen, but, but some of the times they don't, and that's what it feels like sometimes with life at the broken places, at the places of unexpected um, disillusionment, that we, we try and grasp at some meaning of it, and it's hard to find the meaning. That's what it means to have hevel or meaninglessness. And so he has a lot to say about work and the meaninglessness of work. This ties into our theme, and we'll, we'll tie it back in in a moment. But, but there's three different um, phrases here, and, and let's see what the author's talking about. It says that fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So that's, there's three lines, and he's trying to say a, me- a message. Fools fold their hands, they ruin themselves. Better is one handful full of tranquility, or I think up here it says peace or something like that. Um, better is one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil, and that is chasing after the wind. Okay, so there's three, there's three different lines here. There's, there's one with... Um, it says, with, with folded hands, there's a line that talks about man in his folded hands ruining himself, or I think it says something crazy on the ESV up there about eating flesh. Better is one handful of tranquility, and then there's one with two handfuls. Well, there's actually three different Hebrew words. We won't get into all of them, but there's, there's a riddle that's decoded by the hand postures. The first Hebrew word for, that for, for folded hands is kind of like your forearms. So if you just go like this, this is what it means. If you, if you have your hands folded, it's kind of like you're taking a nap. He's like, that's foolishness. There's meaninglessness in that. If you just say, well, I just don't participate in the world. I don't work, and I'm just going to kind of go, you know, live out in, under a tree or something like that. He says, that's a foolishness. That's a meaninglessness. Well, the code decracks on the third line. If you go down to two handfuls, this is, this is what he's saying. He's saying there's this other actual separate word, which means hands that are grasped, two hands like this, grabbing onto things. He says that, that that's kind of like, the person who is, is, is chasing after work, he's chasing after significance, or she's chasing after a dream. And, and, and Ecclesiastes, another part of the book, says those people stare at the ceiling and, and their work, it haunts them. The work that should have been a blessing actually haunts them. It's like that person that owns the business and you think that they're on top of the world because they're living their dream and their passion, but actually like they're, they're owned by their work. They, they can't put their work down. Um, and he says that's meaningless because ultimately you're going to build something up and it's like a sandcastle in the sand and the water's going to come and the tide's going to take it away and the business will get handed on to a kid who doesn't appreciate it or the business will fall and it won't last beyond you. And when you're working for your, your legacy, you're working for your identity, you're working for something you know, like that only, only God should supply you, then there's a meaninglessness. But he says this in the middle line that better is one handful. He says this is where we find peace at this one handful place that we receive and we give that we work as a joy, that we work and we rest in this rhythm of creation. He says, this is, this is, where, this is where only our peace can be found. Like, like we, we, will, we will find a meaninglessness. We'll try and grab at this vapor of, of significance and meaning when we chase after our work for this kind of significance or meaning it won't be found there. But he says, but in the giving and the receiving and the walking hand in hand with God, in our daily sharing of meals and praying, and celebrating, and, and learning new things at our job, and, 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 and mourning losses with our, with our spouse, and our family, and our friends. That's where 
That's where this tranquility, this peace would be found. That's the word that he uses. So what's Ecclesiastes in Genesis telling us? And I'm going to read us some statistics here. But work and, work and rest to the human um, are not just patterns of survival. We don't work just to make sure we have enough food for the winter. God was working when there wasn't scarcity, and there still isn't scarcity, but God never saw the world as scarce, and he got working because it was part of his nature. Work was before the fall, not after the fall. So work was not part of survival. Work was part of worship. Work was part of what it meant to be divine, because that's what God did on page one of the Bible. In the beginning, he began to work. And neither is rest. Rest is not, rest is not an escape or a vacation from the things that we're doing. No, rest itself is a complement to work. And it is part of the rhythm of the universe. And when we rest and when we work, it is not in the object of materials that we can gain from our resting and working or the avoidance of problems and pitfalls that we can gain. It's not fundamentally about survival. It is about worship and walking in hand in hand in the rhythms of grace with God. So here's what's going on in America today. These are some studies about um, our country as it looks at things like rest and work. So the United States uh, still holds the gold medal for GDP in the world, gross domestic product. We make and sell and work more things than any other place by a large margin. 22% of our gross domestic product, all the things that we make, um, all the world is 22% of it is made in the United States, but we only represent 4% of the population. So 4% of the population, which is the United States, is creating 22% of the world's GDP today. For example, California, which pumps out two million, excuse me, two trillion dollars of GDP every year, uh, uh, pars the same as Italy. So it makes the same amount of stuff as Italy does with 37% less people. That's how industrious and hardworking the United States is today. United States uh, works, uh, the average worker works 137 hours more a year than the Japanese, which I think they're pretty hardworking people. I don't know. 260 hours more per year than the British and 490 hours more than the French, which might make sense. I don't know. <clears throat> from 73 to 1990, our hours have only increased from 40 to 47 hours. The average work week is not crazy. But this is what's crazy. 37% uh, is the figure that, that although our hours went from 40 to 47, our rest has gone down 37% which means that we work more, we make more, we spend more, and with all of that, we rest way less, to a degree of 37% less. Our average household has increased um, by th from 1,300 square feet to 2,300 square feet. The American dream is alive and well. But the number of kids that we have has gone down from 4.32 to 2.58. Because who's having 4.32 kids anymore except for crazy people? So we're making more, we're working more, we're resting less, and we need more, and we take more, we, we buy more. I mean, that's what the statistics will say over and over again. And we also take gold in many of these other tragic categories as well. We have the highest rates of stress, anxiety, and depression. We spend $250 billion a year on prescription drugs. Antidepressants are the second most prescription drugs in America, second only to cholesterol medication. One in 10 uh, Americans are on antidepressants at any given time. And 25% will be on antidepressants at one time in their life or another. Mental illness, bipolar, schizophrenia, and ADHD are soaring through the roof. So what's the correlation and what's the causation? It's hard to really tell. But the point is this, that work and rest, we can see from Genesis, Ecclesiastes, and personal experience, is not just made to be about occupation and vacation. Work and rest are divine rhythms for man's life with God. We were not created to work for survival. We were created to work to be a part of the project, 
We were created to work because it's who we are. That's why retired people retire for six months and they get bored and go find a job. That's why two-year-olds get out of the womb and they just start pushing chairs around your house for no good reason at all and spilling cookies on the floor and putting your watch in the toilet because that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're like, you guys are boring. Y'all think that work isn't fun. Work is my job. You know, that's what uh, Kyra's grandma used to say, that work is a kid's play or play is a kid's work. And I think that that's true. Genesis 1 Uh, chapter 1, verse 27. We've read it so many times. We'll read it once more. So God created man in his own image. In his image, God created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. Subdue is actually where we get the word kibosh. You ever hear somebody say, put a kibosh on something? That's what it means. It means to, to subdue, to, to, to hold and restrain it. It's wild. It's, it wants to be wild, but man was there to contain and make something beautiful, uh, more beautiful of the good world that God has created, a very good world with man involved. And have dominion to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every little thing on the earth. So what is, what is God's definition of work? God has, God has see, you see that, he secretly defined rest and work on the seventh day. He talks about rest, but then he also, by saying what rest is, designates what work is. Well, work is everything that goes from Genesis, you know, day one to day six. And that is to fill the earth, to form and function it, to create something out of nothing, to organize it so there's benefit and beauty. And then he creates man in his image to continue that process. Work is not a part of the fall. It's part of the creation because God is the first worker and he made man to work in his garden. And it is very good when man works in his garden. So what is work? Work is ordering something for the benefit and the beauty of his world. It is more than just ministry. It is more than evangelism. Work is as towing a car. Work is mowing a lawn. Work is um, feeding birds. Work is going to the supermarket. Work is planning a vacation. Work is, is all around us, and every little category of things that we do is, is an echo of our Genesis intention. So here's an everyday photo of uh, something in my house. The naked eye, this means nothing to you. Uh, this looks like a bunch of um, couch cushions. Oh, we got to go back to the photo. Uh, a bunch of couch cushions that are on the floor. But if you look a little closer, there's much more going on in the photo than the couch cushions. If you can see... There's four couch cushions on the right and one couch cushion on the left, and then there's two stacked couch cushions. And I didn't know, just like you wouldn't have known if you walked into a room like this, my instinct as a worker of God is to go pick it up and put order back into my living room, for goodness sakes. No! My two-year-old son comes out. No! He runs out of the bathroom. This is my house! Don't break down my house! Little did I know that when I was asleep, my son was already Genesis 2-ing all over my house, putting order, benefit, and beauty all over my house, building a house with couch cushions. This is the vision that this kid has. And there's, there it is, right? There's, there's order, right? There's order to it from, from being three years old. He's taken the things and stacked it just right. And if I moved it, he would have known. He would have known if I would have moved the east wing to the west. He would have recognized that it was not meant to be that way, Dad. Don't disturb. And, and, and there's beauty in it. I mean, it's not just stacks. I mean, there's like terrain around the side. And here's the thing, right, that you know that we were made for work is that every kid, when they do something like this, is the first thing they say to their parent is like, dad, come play with me on this thing. Come, come live with me in this house. I mean, I built this house. I don't want to do it alone. I want to be part of this. I want to be working with you. I want to create a project with you. And that's part of just what it means to be human. And Ali has God's work ethic. That's him doing his job before the fall, before, um, before it felt assigned or before it felt, you know, uh, overly engineered. You know, that's the thing. If when we were in high school, we get assigned books that if we would have just read them in the library, we'd probably like them, but because we have to do it, it's like not fun anymore. 
And that's what kind of happens with our work. But we realize when we take vacations, we get antsy and we want to move and work. And, and, and that is the impulse. Then there's a second verse that we need to pay attention to when it comes to defining the job description of a worker in the Garden of Eden in this world. The garden story continues in Genesis 2.15, just one verse. It says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, shamar, and keep it, avadah. To work and to keep, those are two priestly words. Talked about that two weeks ago, but the priestly words uh, to work and to keep were things that the priests did to keep things holy. And so what we recognize about God's good earth is that he had intended us to work it, not only to create form and function and benefit and beauty out of it, but to create holiness and wholeness in it. So, so many of us have maybe not seen in real life, but certainly on a dateline or a 2020 or something like that, like the evils and perils of sweatshops, like everything it takes for us to get our iPhone, you know. These sweatshops are just these like awful places where it seems like slavery, you know, as in its kind of like most modern form, still exists and continues in these places where they're paid two cents a day. They got no bathroom breaks. You know, if they quit and they slack off and they'll just get some other kid off the street. These are like 10-year-old kids that work in these places. That's not a statement on Apple. I don't know what their business is. But we know that some companies like this do this. And, and, and so what are we seeing here? Are we seeing productivity? Sure. We are absolutely seeing, you know, order, beauty, and benefit for some within the chambers of that factory. They are creating things. They are multiplying things. They are doing great things. They're getting things done. They're producing a phone or a watch or a soccer ball or a, a swoosh shoe or a Nike shoe or whatever. Like they're creating things. But the problem is, is they're creating, creating good things, but they're not holy in the way that they're creating. You see how that, that's different? How it's not worked and kept, how it's not a holy space, how it's not sacred, how the kingdom of heaven is not part of that. And that was not God's intention to get things done in unholy ways. It was his intention for good work to be done with the hands of holy people, to see God's not only work done, but his ways being done on the earth. Um, I was talking to, to Adam Grabluski the, the other day, and he was asking me if you peek ahead in your Bible to Genesis 11, like there's this great tower that's built at the end of Genesis 11 called the Tower of Babel, and it's this tower that's meant to build up to the sky, and it totally is part of, in some way, the echo of where Genesis 2, the command to go and fill the earth, right? It fills the earth, it multiplies, it does great things, it rules and reigns, it's very regal, royal, it builds vertically up into the sky. It's this new technology called the brick that they put on top of it, and they, and they built this thing, and that's human ingenuity. But what's the problem? And it says in the very next verse, in verse 2, let us build a building and make a name for ourselves. They've forgotten the priestly duty. They've done the, the kingly thing, which is to create something great, but they forgot the priestly thing. And so a lot of us, I think, um, we can get pulled to one tension or the other as human beings. Not even just Christians, but human beings in general get pulled towards the, the product, the getting things done. A lot of times our personality, our gift set, our, our perspective, our worldview will emphasize the ingenuity and the engineering of life. Like, you know, Let's get things done. Even in marriages, it's like there's a fast person and a slow person. The fast person, let's go. Let's get it done. Let's get it moving. We got to get things done. And that is good. God says we are not here to sit still. We're supposed to be project managers. We're supposed to engage and to expand and do things and change and not just run away from the world. That's, that's not what Genesis has told us to do. But at the same time, he would tell a kingly person, a person that has you know, a, a, an authority that wants to extend and do great things to remember the priestly side of work to remember not just to pioneer, but to develop. And to the priestly person, you know, there's people that, you know, maybe a little bit more like me, a little slow, and, you know, we, we, we want to make sure people are okay, and we want to pastor and care and shepherd, and we want to make sure that things are safe. And he's going, don't forget, you're a pioneer. 
Don't forget you were meant to be a king, not only a priest, you were supposed to extend his rule and reign. You think about even the, the politics of the day, the left and the right, right? Isn't that what it's saying is that in humanity, there's these, probably the right side of the, the political scale emphasizes authority and ruling and doing things the right way and getting things done. And it's not saying that they don't care about people or humans, but it's just saying that's the emphasis. They're seeing the image of a man and the image of God in that way. Whereas the other side is, is the more left and the more justice-oriented and people-oriented and so forth. And, and I think God's not political. And I mean, I, I mean, I've never said that here before in this church, but I just, I don't see him red or, or, or blue. I see him as king. And I, and I see him riding in uh, to Jerusalem and, and it equally convicts both sides. And I think we see the echoes of that in our political spectrum and in our families and even in our churches, I believe, sometimes the split usually happens between people that want to go fast and people that want to go slow. It's usually not about supernatural, or it's usually not about theology. It's about we want to go, or we want to stay. And that's the, that's the tension. And that's what the priesthood is about. It's about being what, what Peter calls a royal priesthood that builds its foundation on Jesus and listens and responds to the voice of Jesus. And that's where we're going to find uh, the fulfillment of what we do in our work, is to be a royal priest. All right, here's a video that I want to play. It was up here a little bit earlier. But I think this really encapsulates for me what it means to be a priest or be a royal priest within a uh, SUV. What did God put in you? He put spirit in me. Yeah. Uh huh? Because you trust who? Jesus. That's awesome. So do you know what? What? I'm going to trust Jesus forever. Saved you from your sin and yeah. took the punishment for you? Yeah. What did God put in you? Boom. How about a hand for Gracie and Britton? First of all, that is the temple of God driving down Woodruff Road right there. And I remember getting that video like weeks ago, and I wanted to use it in a prior message. And I just thought, I felt like the Lord's voice was saying to me, She is doing her job. That is Gracie doing what she was made to do, and that is good. When, when he said in Genesis you know, 1, that's very good, that's what he had in mind. It was a little girl on her throne prophesying to the world about who's king. You know, that's what's going on. And, 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 but not just ruling. You see how there is a, a, a priesting that's going on there. there. There is a nurturing, a working, and attending, and not just getting things done, but also seeing, seeing, seeing the value system of God um, integrate itself into the things that are getting done. And so it's, you know, what's not as featured and highlighted is, is, is just Britain. It's just so sweet to priest her daughter in that way, I would use that word, to ask her the questions, allow her to speak and, and, to, and to cultivate, not to, not to preach at her and just tell her, hey, say this after me and repeat after me. Like, what is God saying to you? And what do you remember? And what's good about God to you? And, and then even further outside the picture is, is our dear friend Adam, who is, you know, working just like the rest of us to provide for that temple to be nurtured and to be prepared for. And, and, and so there it is. That's it. That's God. That's Jesus fulfilling his mandate in simple ways of, of ruling and reigning and also being a priest at the same time when it comes to work. So what is work? Work is probably, uh, actually, Michael did a great job during prayer before service to uh, highlight this verse. But work is simply this verse, Colossians 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work at all your heart. What's work? Everything. 
Everything you do, except for maybe sleeping, but maybe that's kind of work too, I don't know. But everything you do is a job. And every job that you do before the Lord is good work. And Colossians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us when the, imperishable put, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, that, that in a flash, things that we do down on this earth, our work will be transformed to return for glory. We're not polishing the brass on a sinking ship. Our work goes on if it's done in the Lord. Our fruit remains if it's done in the, world, in the Lord. If we do our work in Jesus Christ, then it's made out of precious gems and it's not burned up with hay and straw. We are not working for vanity. That's, that, that's, that's what Ecclesiastes got wrong in the sense that it... it, it it hearkened and, and looked forward to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ um, in, in the coming of the new creation that he was building, but it didn't quite grasp at it yet. It was still vapor to him, but Jesus holds in his hand the kingdom of hand, sol- the kingdom of heaven in his hand um, uh, uh, c- d- uh, completely, and he allows us to continue to build this kingdom with him as we work with him, like him, and for him. And so it says, whatever you do, work with it. Work with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance. That's what we're, we're going to receive. There's a purpose. There's a point. It's not for vanity. There's an inheritance to the work that we did. In some way, I believe that the work that was done for that video and all that beauty that happened in it, God blesses it and sees it and remembers it and sees it go into eternity. It's not for vanity that we pay for our SUVs and fill them up and drive our kids down the, down the street and remind them of who the, who the Lord is in Scripture. That is the Lord's work. And it says, don't ever get, get lazy or lose your... Your, um, your, your vigor for that kind of a work, that is good work that continues on. It is the Lord you are serving, Colossians 3.23. So before we are a witness, and um, I want to talk about rest in a minute here, but I just want us to think about this idea. Before your work can be a witness, it was always supposed to be about worship. This is the thing I think when you ask an average Christian, hey, what's your work for? It quickly goes to, I'm going to pay for the church with it, I'm going to tithe, and I'm going to give to missions, and I'm going to maybe meet somebody to spread the kingdom. But here's the reality. A witness that isn't first based in worship can't witness about anything in the first place. So, so what, what that means is, is like the scriptures are telling us that work was always meant to be for worship. And if we go to a job that we can't worship at, we are really hindered. I mean, the Lord is sovereign, but we are really held back and be able to witness because what are we witnessing about if we're not worshiping first? If the nine to five is just a means to an end, if it's just a blessing that's in the, it's a curse in the way of my blessing, if it's something to pay for the blessing, then I think we miss. I think we're the two-handed person trying to grab at something that God has never meant to put meaning in. The work that you have, the nine to five, it is a blessing. It is a blessing to get up and use your mind and your capacities. Let's say you never pay for another mission trip. Let's say you never witness to anybody in your work. It would still be a blessing because it is worship to God. It is part of who you are. That's what work is. That's what work is. And so when we get into this, this idea of, of, of work, I, I, would, I would challenge you to do an inventory. Like, ask yourself that question. You know, those coaches or whatever, the life coaches, they're like, what would you do if money was never an issue? And it's like, well, I would just go on the beach and chill. And that's probably the right answer. But after six months, you'd get bored of that. And then what would you do? This is, I believe, the mentality of what, we're, what, what Genesis is trying to remind us of. The echoes of what we were created for to do is to do something with joy and with great hope and vigor and not kind of mundanely move in, clock in and out, expecting that somehow the blessing's on the other side of it. If the blessing's not here, then it's never. The blessing has to be on Monday. It has to be there, and we have to, to fight for it. And maybe there's, there's lots of things we'll get into at the end of, of ways, I think, that we get in the way of ourselves in, in, in having and receiving that blessing. But that's what the blessing is. It's, it's, it's an open-handed response of, of working and resting and working and resting and working and resting. That's our, that's our portion. And, and Psalm 16 would tell us that portion is good. All right. 
Let me move on to Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, excuse me, and talk about the commandment of rest, um, and then uh, we'll, be, we'll be done for the day. All right, so Deuteronomy, this is chapter 5, verse 12, it says this. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Mackenzie, I was uh, talking to her before service, great word. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. That's, that's worth us getting together today. Verse 13. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus is our Sabbath. There's no day that is more holy than another. So we don't practice Sabbath day as much as a Sabbath posture, but Sabbath is still something very uh, integrated into what it means to be a human being, for sure. The seventh day, the Sabbath, is given to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do no work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox or your donkey, for the record, I do not make my ox do any work. On Sunday, so you can rest assured that your, your pastor does not do that. Uh, your male servant or your female servants may rest as well. And then listen, this, verse 15, this is, this is important. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. This is actually the second time that the Ten Commandments are given, the Ten Words. And this was given to the second generation that had already been exiled uh, out of uh, Egypt. And uh, the first time it was given, the Ten Commandments, at Mount Sinai, Moses comes down and gives the Ten Commandments, and it gives kind of the same word for word. I mean, it's like one line is up and one line's down. But the reason was not about Egypt. The reason was about Genesis, and it talked about how the reason we rest and work is because God called the Sabbath day holy, and he blessed it the way that we just read in Genesis chapter 1, or 2, rather. But this time, the story has evolved, and because of God's hand, he's put uh, Israel into Egypt. He blessed Joseph, even though he's in the pit in the dungeon based on some false accusation. He's raised up into a place of leadership and blesses not only uh, Israel, but also Egypt. And that harkens to the idea that the family of God is not just blessed, but blessed to be a blessing. And so Joseph is the first remnant of that. Now the Pharaoh changes and they're enslaved. And, and the whole conflict between Israel and the Pharaoh is whether or not the people that were called by his name could go out and practice Sabbath, to go and worship. That's where the whole conflict of the ten plagues come in. And, and, and so because of that, uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to allow uh, the people of Israel go. The ten plagues come, and, and so then they are exiled out of Egypt. And this is where the verse finds its point. In verse 15, you shall remember, remember generation, because this is now the second time, Deuteronomy is the second law. Remember, you would have forgotten, because you weren't there, that was your grandpa that did that, that you were once a slave, but now you are free, so when you're free, don't act like a slave, is what he's implying. So what's this saying is that in Genesis 1, it's interesting, he's saying celebrate the Sabbath because that's what God did. But in Deuteronomy, the second offering of the law, he says we rest not only because it's what God does, but because it's what the world doesn't do. He's saying, he's saying you know, the first time, do what God does. When you rest, it's a command because that's what God does. But in the second one, he's saying you're going to rest because it's what Pharaoh didn't do. And you're going to show that all you, although you serve Pharaoh and you bless Pharaoh, you don't, you're not ruled by Pharaoh. This, this is the line on the screen I think helps it land. That rest is not only a rhythm from God, it is a resistance to the kingdom of this world. The picture that you should have in your mind right now is Chick-fil-A. Right? Like, is there any time you want to go to Chick-fil-A more than on Sunday? I want a chicken deluxe sandwich so bad right now. And I think it's completely true. Like, I think they're ruling and priesting. I think they're great. I don't know what you think about Chick-fil-A. I think they're great. And Chick-fil-A, like, should run our government based on the way they run that drive through system. I've seen a meme, and I completely agree I would vote for that cow or whatever they would have run. I think it'd be great. But what are they saying every time you drive by? Like, you can't help but see the message of resistance. 
that the Pharaoh of the world and the Pharaoh of our heart and our mind are more and more and more and 300% more GDP and raise and benefits and new things and new toys and new cars. I mean, that's the mantra of the world. The voice is so loud that sometimes we need to listen to the voice of God and tell you, I don't, I mean, if you, I know you want to listen to your friends. I know it's easy to listen to yourself. I know it's easy to trust your instincts, but I know better than you. And I'm commanding you to stop. And when you stop, you're not only participating in the worship of Genesis, you are participating in the resistance and the rebellion to this kingdom, which is dying and failing as we speak by resisting, by Sabbathing, based on my word and not his, that you serve the world and that you're in the world, but you're not of the world. I've called you to people by my name and I've called you out. You're a human being, you're not a machine. And every time, every time somebody will see you rest, that you are blessing them. You are, you are reminding them that they are more than a machine. And then they are not economic units. They're not slaves. And they're not built for burning and, and, and binging and, and running from work and, and, and trying to get by and get through the weekend and get to the weekend and being a weekend warrior. You're made for more than that. You're made to be an image of God. You're made to bring the kingdom of heaven. You're meant to be like Gracie and Ollie and have, have, a, have a joy in you every step of the way. And that's what your life is saying when you decide to concertedly rest. This is, a, 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 I think, a quote that has stuck with me all week. H.H. Farmer says this, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. If you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. In other words, running against the Sabbath, running against the need for, for rest, our body, and eventually our health will tell us, is like trying to fight gravity. We go right back to Genesis and we think about this. Would you build a uh, skyscraper on the Atlantic Ocean? Would you try and swim in the sand? Like God sat there and on what, day three, he separated those two things. He says, they're not the same. They're not the same. And, and, then, and then he goes on, he says, in animals, like you wouldn't have your dog come out and get a whiteboard and try and teach your dog calculus, right? Like they're not created to do that. And so where do we get in our mind that, like you would never in the Ten Commandments say, you know what, man, I, uh, whew, it's been a crazy week and I, uh, I just love, I call my mom and I just curse her in, in the phone sometimes. I just curse at my mom and just tell her how worthless she is, right? Like, we would never do that. Like, we would never say, hey, how you doing? It's like, yeah, I've been really um, uh, coveting my neighbor's um, uh, yard, and I've also uh, been unfaithful to my spouse. Like, we would never say that. But how often is it in America when you go up to somebody, even if they're not, they say, hey, how you doing? The response is, I'm good, but I'm really busy. This is, this is what he's saying. I, I think this is why it's in Genesis as one of the seven days and in the commandments as one of the 10 days that Sabbath is not like just a suggestion or a, you know, a good advice. Like the Sabbath is the very essence of, who, of, of what it means to be a human being. It rubs against the nature of life to, to suggest that we don't, we don't need a day of rest when God himself rested and commands us to rest when he pulls his people um, out, of, out of the desert. Um, they actually did a study, speaking of French people, um, they did a study uh, that during the Revolutionary War, it was the only time the French tried to make a 10-day week. And so they worked nine days and rested one. And did you know what they found? That the uh, productivity went down and the depression and the anxiety went up. Did you also know that there was a study given to the seven-day Adventists? You know, the people that like, are really religious about the, the Sabbath, the Sunday, and they hold pure to it. And they, of course, live longer than, than the average American. As a matter of fact, there's been a study that says that you add up all the Sabbath days that the Seventh-day Adventists take, um, they actually get those days back at the end of their life. The number of days that they rested, if you calculate out of the whatever weeks of the year, 52 weeks of the year, that they actually add those 52 days back to their life. This is nature. It's, it's, not, it's not about earning or proving or being smarter or whatever. It's like, 
We're human beings. Sand is meant to be made sandcastles of. Oceans are made to scuba dive in. And we're made to rest and we're made to work. And there's nothing we can do to change that. And so um, this is the intentional question today. I just want you to consider it. I'm going to invite the band to come up. But just a simple question as you reflect. What robs you of the joy-filled rhythm of rest and work? What, do, what would you say gets in the way of this rhythm that was set um, from the beginning of time? Uh, the place that we were always meant to set aside to remember that we didn't create ourselves and we didn't ultimately create the things that are necessary for life, that everything that we have is a gift and the giver is good. There's a joy in that. There's an open-handed joy. Uh, the teacher, the wisest man who ever lived would say, there's an open-handed joy in not imagining that our wealth and meaning comes from our occupation and our title, but comes in today. It comes in the day-by-day abided effort that we have to walk with God, to work with him, to work like him, to work for him, to work in the work of the Lord. This is a portion that we would not want to miss today. And so what is it that would keep us from that? I thought to myself in, in my notes here, like potentially the spirit of competition could really get at me for that, right? Like this idea that, I don't know, you're a barista and there's these barista competitions and uh, you go to the barista competition, you're pretty good for Greenville, but you go to the national competition, it's like, man, that guy in Michigan is killing it on those cappuccino flowers or whatever. And there's this, this gnawing sense that like, I'm not just jealous of what that person has, I'm jealous of who they are. And in some ways, the motive of what gets me up in the morning is I don't like myself. And therefore, the work that should have been a blessing becomes a curse. You see how that works? This idea of a fear of not enough, you know, that God, that God really doesn't, doesn't provide and that he doesn't really care and he's forgotten about me. That would make me work under Pharaoh because Pharaoh's going to take better than me than God if that's who I believe God is. I don't believe my work's going to matter. He doesn't care. He doesn't see it. I mean, that's, that's what would begin to permeate my mind if I were to see work as a curse instead of a blessing and have me miss the very breath of life, the, the, the gift that he'd want to give to me on Monday morning and Tuesday morning. What, what is it for you? What, what would keep you from, from enjoying, from seeing joy today and not expecting it's tomorrow and then miss it altogether? I, I read an article one time that said that uh, the distance between a novice and an expert is 10,000 hours. Sometimes I think we, we want to enjoy uh, something that we're not ready to do yet. I've never met a kid that is great at baseball that says, I hate baseball. The kid always comes home and he's like, I hate baseball. And it's like, well, that's because you're not very good at it, you know? And, and that's the reality is that a lot of times I think the distance between us just surviving and thriving in work is just practice. It's just time. It's committing to do something with a sense of confidence that God is for you and that you have the gifts and the skills and the abilities to do it well. And that it isn't really about the money and you're not a slave to your job and you're not a slave to your boss and your boss doesn't tell you who you really are. God tells you who you really are. You work for the Lord and it's this mentality that we can go to work and we can actually release the curse of Pharaoh, release the curse of slavery and economic oppression and we can live in this place even in a broken world and serve the Lord and see our work go on to do great things. God is with us. God is for us. He came to live with us, for us, and like us so we can live and work with him, for him, and like him. And so what is it? I wonder. Would you stand with me as we respond today in worship? But I just want you to respond and think. What's keeping you? Is it a plan? Would you rest if you and your wife and your husband sat down and you said, this is how we're going to spend our Saturday or Sunday? 
I'm going to treat this like it's a vacation. I'm not going to wait for Christmas or summer vacation to come to the place of zero miles per hour. We're going to intentionally create a space of Sabbath because that's who God is and that's what God's told us to do. What is it that would draw you into the arms of rest and work? This is the rhythm. This is what you've given you, he's given you to worship. This is what these songs are about tomorrow is how are these songs going to matter in your workplace, in your nine to five, in your homes. God, we bless you. We thank you that your blessing is on this earth. We declare what you call holy and what you call not holy, unholy. We want to be kings, but also priests. And God, through our work, Lord, would you do something eternal through us, God? Do something that matters. Do something that has joy and power to it, not only our own talents. And so, God, we put our whole life before you, knowing it's nothing compared to you. But God, we know that your glory and goodness will come through as we seek you. We thank you, Jesus, for the gift you've given us, and we want to respond to you in faith. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.